0: the good fight with Yasha Monk. My name is David Hamburger. I'm director of operations here at Persuasion. And earlier this week, I published a piece entitled Border Insecurity, Border Patrol's sweeping powers inside the United States lack accountability and perpetuate racial profiling. These days, especially given the acute humanitarian situation at the southern border, there's a lot of discussion about Border Patrol as it takes place at the actual border. But less discussed and perhaps less known is the power that Border Patrol, the law enforcement agency, has to conduct immigration stops not only at the border, but indeed up to 100 miles away from the border, and not only the southern border, but the northern border and the coastal borders of the U.S. as well. Their power is not only expansive in geographic scope, which is one thing, it's also expansive in terms of the authority it gives Border Patrol agents. They're entitled, according to the law, to investigate whether or not individuals, citizens or non-citizens, are legally within the United States and to question anybody on their immigration status. Border Patrol agents can stop each and every car for no reason at all or for whatever reason they choose and ask whether or not the driver and the occupants are U.S. citizens. I think it's understandable that border patrol not only take place exactly at the physical border, but in some degree from the border. Necessarily, we imagine that there is a border zone rather than a pure land border. But the question is, what is the proportionate amount of authority, geographic scope and discretion given to officers to carry out their necessary task? And of course, it is a Herculean task. There's a second concerning element that I raised in the piece as well. And that is the authority given to Border Patrol when they're carrying out these investigations, these stops and and questionings, to use racial profiling as an element of their investigative techniques. And the Supreme Court wrote in its majority opinion in the seminal case on this Martinez fuerte in 1976 that even if checkpoint inspections are made largely on the basis of apparent Mexican ancestry, we perceive no constitutional violation. And I think this is the most worrying of the two components because it is one of the areas in which not only is racial profiling an issue on the ground, but it has been validated by the highest court in the land of the Supreme Court. So in addition to these two elements, one, the expansive authority given to Border Patrol, and two, the fact that that authority includes the ability to conduct racial profiling, there's a third, much more basic concern, and that is that these checkpoints actually Don't work all that well. A 2013 to 2016 survey conducted by the Government Accountability Office, for example, found that four out of 10, 40 percent of seizures by Border Patrol at these internal checkpoints were of an ounce or less of marijuana from U.S. citizens. So I argue in the piece that we're being asked to make significant outlays as far as expenditure is concerned as taxpayers, and we're being asked to lay on the line significant civil liberties, but that the return on that investment has been disproportionately a small-level drug enforcement carried out at massive scale rather than the promised border security. So they're bad at doing what they are supposed to be doing, and they disproportionately stop U.S. citizens for small Often trivial amounts of marijuana. So that's the bad news. In, in the piece, though, I remain optimistic and I argue that there are three paths for reform to this system. And the first and easiest thing to do is to end the legal use of ethnic or racial appearance in immigration searches. There is a second avenue for reform, and that is to curtail the scope of Border Patrol's exceptional stop powers. And third, There is the question of data-driven accountability to get a better sense of what the scope of the problem is, which would offer significantly increased reporting and transparency on how frequently and for what reason motorists are stopped at these Border Patrol internal checkpoints. And so I think one of the major motivating factors for me in writing this piece is not only the expansive power writ large that Border Patrol has, but also given the, the current discussions in the country about race and policing to focus on this particular expansive power as it's used disproportionately or as it's permitted to be used legally, specifically against those who look like they do not belong. If we're talking about race and policing, then surely one of the first places we should look is where the law explicitly allows racial profiling to take place.
1: David Hamburger's piece called Border Insecurity
2: was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. Well, it really is a special pleasure today to welcome James Carville to the podcast. Carville, as many of you will know, is one of the most famous and effective political strategists in the United States particularly renowned for being the lead strategist on Bill Clinton's presidential run in 1992, but somebody who has advised political candidates for about five decades. We spoke very widely about how it is that Joe Biden won the 2020 election, but also about why it is that Democrats did not win nearly as big as they should have and the pitfalls they face in the coming years. Carvel complains about the faculty lounge language that dominates so much of the political discourse and so much of the messaging of Democrats and lays out how Democrats can stand for ambitious political goals without falling into those pitfalls. I promise to you that the conversation is worth listening to attentively. James Carville, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Glad to be here.
1: <laughs> Good way to get the day started. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, look, I have two questions off the bat. The first is, what did Democrats do right in 2020 to win the presidency and win control of Congress? But B, what did they do wrong?
1: Well, I mean, the thing we did right is we ran against Donald Trump. The second thing we did right is we nominated Joe Biden. You know, underneath that, I actually thought it was a kind of disappointing election cycle. I mean, we came within 42,000 votes of losing to like what I call a historical buffoon. I mean, maybe the biggest buffoon in history. And we lost our seats. We came back in Georgia rather nicely and made some amends. But we got a tough cycle coming in 2022. Look, we had a awesome 2018. Why we ditched that strategy for a strategy that some people in the party would say, well, we want now, let's change the dictionary. Well, maybe that wasn't why we were elected.
2: When you talk about changing the dictionary, you're talking about terms like Latinx or BIPOC that are now getting very
1: Yeah, yeah. Communities of color, you know, we're using the language, as I point out, of the faculty lounge, not the language of the people. And that's the point I was trying to make. I did it pretty graphically, but sometimes when you
2: want to get people's attention, you have to get their attention. <laughs> so why is it that a lot of people are so resistant to that? I think there's this sort of sense that somehow, you know, when you speak plain language, that means you must also end up advocating for bad causes and that the only way to fight for noble causes is to use very carefully chosen language. How do you think politicians can fight for just causes but speak in a way that avoids a faculty lounge? Let's try the
1: most just cause ever. I think it was begun by Hillel in 5000 B.C. and really brought to attention by Jesus. And it's called Love Your Neighbor as Yourself. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. That's not complicated. You know exactly what I'm saying. And by the way, it is an utterly glorious thought. There may not have ever been any thought in all of humankind to better describe the ideal relationship between a human and other humans. So the idea that in order to communicate these great truths, it takes long-winded, jargonist language to explain that to people. And, you know, if you're at the philosophy department at the University of Chicago, all right, they use that in that code language, and you know, you're a philosophy student, you have to do that. Most people are not philosophy students at the University of Chicago. Most people speak... A language, and most people are better equipped that they don't give public policy the same amount of thought that someone like you does. I mean, they pay attention, and it comes in, it comes out. And when they come in, if you're speaking to them in code, they're not going to take the time to decipher your code. So let's try English. It seems to work Pretty good in many cases.
2: I think there's two problems here, right? One is a problem of comprehension, but people are sort of like, I don't even know what you're on about, I'm going to tune out. But another is one of condescension, right? Where they're sort of like, you're using that language to show that you're somehow better than me. Is, is that part of the element? I mean, what does it communicate to us? It is a big part of it.
1: So you're addressing me in a different manner than I would address my friends or my family. And you're showing off on top of that when you do that people just shut you down they think you're not of them you're not talking to them and you're just trying to impress them and as I point out a piece in one sense it's kind of harmless I mean these people sit around and, and it's harmless in one sense but it's hurtful in another sense that it prevents you from talking to people about the things that you want to know about you or your cause or whatever it is that you espouse it so to that extent it is hurtful And the biggest thing, if you look at all of the post-election analysis, what you'll find is relative to 2016, we did less well in, quote, communities of color, unquote. So it's not people are saying, well, James, oh, you're trying to talk about white. But no, I'm not. It does put off some white voters. It also doesn't work particularly well with the voters that form the base voters of the Democratic Party. You can look at David Shaw's analysis, catalyst analysis, AP analysis. It's all pretty much the same. And when someone is sending you a
2: signal, you ought to pay attention to it. It's probably something to it. Why do you think that the Democratic Party is not paying attention to it? It seems to me that it has something to do with the incentives, right? That actually, if you're a political consultant who doesn't have your standing and frankly, your ability to speak your mind, your incentive is to give advice, to use Latinx because you know you're not going to offend anybody, you're not going to get cancelled on social media, you'll get the next contract. And if a candidate loses, that's OK. You know, consultants who advise losing candidates still are in the business. But ones who are branded as bigoted or insufficiently with a program insufficiently inside the language of the faculty lounge on Twitter or Facebook may not get the next contract. You're going right to the heart of the matter. I am a political professional.
1: All right. My goal is to win. You know, Bernie Sanders famously said in 2016 that it's really not about winning the election. It's about having an argument. No, it's not. It's about winning the election. And by the way, I've become to kind of become a more of an admire Senator Sanders during this election process than I was prior to that, but that's not the point. And a lot of people say, you know, James, you understand by 2034, we're going to be in a position to win a lot of races. Well, I'm 76. I can't predicate my life <laughs> on 2034, you know? And we know what lost elections have cost us. They've cost us an entire branch of government. Of course, we have to win the House by seven points to even break even or something like that. And, you know, Electoral College is not exactly in our favor. So I'm just advocating that we speak in the vernacular. We speak in the language of people, in the, the simplest communication.
2: You know, I have a term for this when I teach, you know, there's something about undergraduate essays and especially the introductions of undergraduate essays, which are a version of that, you know, smart students who speak intelligently, but in a normal register in the classroom, and then you read the drafts of what they write. And it's full of these highfalutin words and reductionist, you know, ever since of time, you know, abstract claim, abstract claim, abstract claim. Right. And I have what I call the dining hall test, which is. Is there any sentence in your essay that you would never say to your friends in the dining hall and they would make fun of you for the next five days if they did? And if the answer is yes, rewrite the damn essay. How do we get politicians to eschew these incentives we've been talking about and pass the dining hall test?
1: So I knew Hemingway, I'd like read in college a little bit it was just all kind of off my radar. I'd go to Paris and my daughter would show me where he hung out with Gertrude Stein of, you know, whatever. And I watched the documentary. He was a complicated guy and he had issues on that. But his simplicity of language, you can learn from. And, you know, Mark Twain famously said, the difference between the right word and a nearly right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. All right? Words are valuable things. And when you're in a business like mine, a persuasion business, or an inspiration business, this business is to inspire your voters and, per se, to have a smaller it is of voters that you can, then a word is a valuable asset. And you're only going to get so many of them. So why waste it? Psychiatrists or psychologists or something have said how much attention that the average person spends speaking of politics. I, I don't have to figure off the top of my head, but unsurprisingly low, I would say. So if you look at words like, you know, dollar bills, you want to use it when you need it and don't waste it and don't waste it on jargon.
2: So I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm very tempted to agree with you, but it doesn't seem to me like Joe Biden won on his eloquence or on fantastic words. You know, build back better is an OK slogan, but it's not one of the more memorable political slogans of our era. And Joe Biden knows how to hold a good speech, but he's not certainly as riveting a speaker as somebody like Barack Obama, or for that matter, Bill Clinton was. But what he communicated is decency, common sense, being the antipode of Donald Trump, being able to promise to voters that they don't have to worry about the president, but they can forget about him for days on end, which is something that I think a lot of Americans were craving. So how do you communicate effectively in politics beyond words? St. Francis told his disciples. He said, go forth and teach the
1: gospel. Speak if necessary. Speaking is one form of communication. Joe Biden can communicate to you in a lot of ways, the way he dresses, his demeanor, his wife. And the fact that he is not as articulate as previous Democratic politicians actually might even work in his favor. And he may be communicating very effectively. Speech is a form of communications. It does not constitute all political communications. So sometimes the fact that he's not particularly inspirational probably helped him in a cycle. I don't know how you'd quantify that, but it never bothered me that much. And in his defense, he really doesn't try. He doesn't try to be Franklin Roosevelt. All right? He doesn't try to be Ronald Reagan. And his sort of... I don't want to say he's inarticulate. That's not exactly the right word. But his lack of articulism, if it's such a word, you would know it, actually is part of his communication portfolio. And you, as a person that teaches writing, are very big on writing and speech as formal communication. And that's one of many. It's an important one, but it's not the whole thing.
2: Yeah, I think that's an important insight. So if the Democratic Party followed your advice on, it's program going forward and it's branding going forward. How do you keep control of that message? It seems to me that that was much easier to do in the 1990s or the 2000s than it is today for two reasons. The first being that there wasn't social media. And so it's just if some congressperson was out of step with a message it was much easier for the party to stop that person from being the one who gets all of the attention whereas on social media the most extreme statement draws both most praise from activists but also most pushback from other sides and the second i think is the composition of the media and it seems to me that the people who are most enthusiastic about faculty lounge politics you know are bookers at msnbc and are op-ed editors at the big newspapers and so on and so both of those things combine to create an effect in which members of Congress, who are by no means representative of their caucus and who are certainly by no means representative of the voters who send them there, take 75, 80 percent of the media attention. So how do you regain control over the brand?
1: You're right. It's much more diffuse now that the idea that you have this kind of big time campaign manager who imposes... Discipline and orthodoxy, given the composition of today's Democratic Party, is just not going to be as effective as it used to be. The one thing that all of these politicians have in common is that you know, even if you really left, let's say, Ilhan Omar, just pull a name out, is that actually you're much better off in a majority than a minority. All right, you just saw the, the amount of power in the House. Being in the majority minority, and, you know, if Pelosi's enforces or something, say, look, Congressman, when, when you say this, understand, but during an election cycle, these things can cause other members a big problem. You know, since my Vox piece, you'd be stunned the number of people that have contacted me to say, thank God. And these are not just Democratic moderates. This is a whole, whole deep cross, broad section. I think there are a lot of woke people who are just tired of being woke. I think it's just too hard a way to live, to just worry that you're always going to say the wrong word to someone, or you're not exactly saying exactly the right word at the right time. And it's hard, but I think the most effective way is pick up the phone and I want to say ostracize, not certainly the word I want to use, but remind them that they're not being helpful to get the things that we want. If you want voting rights pass. you should have 51 senators on board of 52, not 50. And that's the best way to do it. Now I'm glad they're bringing earmarks back because that's some device that the leadership has to impose some kind of discipline on their caucus. But yes, everybody knows that if you say something provocative and really different, you'll get your three minutes on MSNBC you might get three hours on NPR. I I, I had a 45-minute discussion on a proper way to address incarcerated people. I never take NPR off my radio when I'm driving because I know I will never fall asleep.
2: Do you think there's also a change in political milieu? You know, it strikes me that, you know, you were born in Georgia, you have deep roots in Louisiana, you were in the Marine Corps, you know, you've had experience. to a broad range of Americans. And in many ways, Joe Biden, even though he obviously became a United States Senator at a very early age, has too. A lot of the people who are calling the shots now, and this is an international phenomenon, I think it's similar in Britain and Germany and France, you know, they may have grown up somewhere in the country, but by the age of 17 or 18, they've gone off to the most elite institution. And ever since then, the life has been via Seller Corridor, you know, the big cities on the West Coast, Wall Street or politics or media or perhaps, you know, management consultancy. And so, actually, just the number of people they know who don't come from that rarefied circle is just much smaller than influential politicians, consultants, editors, everybody else in this kind of world I would have had 30 or 50 years ago.
1: So, let's start and make a point. The best, sagest political advice. I have ever heard in my life was from Bill Clinton, unsurprisingly. We were in Little Rock for a reunion, 25th year reunion of the war room. And Rabbi Stanley and he came and greet everybody and asked, how you doing? And so Kaya Andrus, who was my kind of assistant in the war room, said, so the president comes to it and she says, Mr. President, this is my daughter, Ashley. She wants to be president one day. What advice do you have for her? And she said, he kind of cocked his head back and the other way he does his finger. He said, two things. Study hard and meet as many people as you can that are not like you. That is the trick, all right? The human beings by nature want to be comfortable. They want to be around people that are like them. And, you know, if you're in the Marine Corps, they don't give you that option. If you live in New Orleans, you don't have that option. It's not an option that I want anyway, all right? The more that you project outward, the better communicator that you're going to be taught at Tulane for nine years and it dawned on me that these kids a lot of them come from out of state and they go to uptown New Orleans and they'll go to Mardi Gras you know Cuda Browns so I made them do a cultural project where they had to go spend a weekend you know in a black church with a stripper I had one of my kids the best one he spent a weekend with the militia in the Achaveline Basin, and, you know, they were shooting fifty caliber machine guns. And he said, hey, well, they're kind of nice, you know, they cook for me. And, they, you know, I mean, they, they definitely were not anything like this kid. But if somebody wants a life in persuasion, you have to push them out of their comfort zone. If you want to be a Ph.D. in medieval English, you don't have to get out of your comfort zone. That doesn't require that if you're a high-end mathematician or code writer, you don't have to do that. But anybody else, if you're trying to sell something, you gotta
2: get out there people to people and speak their language. I have a pet theory that I wanna try out on you because I'm sure that you'll either put me right or be able to improve on it. So you know, if you remember, as I'm sure you do in 2004, there was this poll which said that more voters wanted to get a beer with George Shelby Bush than with John Kerry. And then there was a whole thing, but that's why W ended up winning. And that never quite made sense to me because most voters are never going to have a beer with a president and they know they won't. And it didn't quite seem to fit motivationally. I think it's the inverse beer test, which is to say voters judge a politician in part on would he or she enjoy having a beer with me if they came into my living room right now And, you know, I hadn't had time to clean up or put any fancy artwork on the wall. And I told them my opinions as they are, not as I think I should sort of address a president. Would they like me? Would they care for me? Or would they go away and say, as Gordon Brown infamously did after meeting a voter before he lost re-election, what an awful bigot? Does that seem right to you, that the inverse beer test plays a role, or is there a better way of putting this? So it'd be hard
1: for me to think of a more influential endorsement a presidential candidate got than when Jim Clyburn endorsed Joe Biden. And remember, to, to kind of buttress your point here, what he said is, he says, you know, we in South Carolina, we know Joe. But more importantly, Joe knows us. Okay? See, that's eloquence. All right? That's telling people something. And it's now flowery, like, hey, we know this guy, but you know what? He knows us. And most people in a politician, they want them to use their power, first and foremost, not to hurt you, all right, to, like, understand your life. And, you know, around the world, I've worked in 22 different countries, most people look at power as something that's out to get them, to hurt them, to, you know, jail them, silence them, you know, confiscate knock their door down. And so I thought that not just was Clyburn himself, of course, he's a highly influential figure, justifiably so, in South Carolina,
2: but his use of language, I thought, was perfect. And these things work when they resonate with something that people believe about a politician, right? And with Joe Biden, people believed that he knows the country and he knows the African-American community and he cares for, for a range of people. I mean, the other seminal moment in the election, I think, was when Joe Biden was in the elevator up to the meeting with the editorial board of the New York Times who asked him pretty hostile questions and I don't think considered endorsing him for even one second. But in the elevator, he ran across a voter who I believe works probably in some less fancy capacity for the New York Times. And, you know, she absolutely loved him and expressed that very effusively. And that went viral on social media. I think that's a nice moment of, you know, he connected with that voter. He didn't connect with the editorial board of the New York Times. But you know what? That endorsement in the elevator was much more important.
1: You know, I'm not a a terribly big fan of the New York Times editorial page. I'll tell you, this is the kind of metropolitan triumphalism, urban arrogance that hurts us. So no big secret, I'm a big LSU guy. It's no big secret that we beat Clemson on January 13th, 2020 in New Orleans. So think about it. So you're the president of LSU. What are you going to do about classes on Tuesday? All right. You're going to say we're not going to have class Tuesday. We don't want our students, you know, driving back... 80 miles or, you know, no one's going to show up anyway. And so, well, put the class off. Well, a guy by the name of Applebaum, who's a member of the Times editorial board, says, well, does Biden Sanders education plan apply to real schools or does it go to places like LSU? Now, that on itself, that's a grotesquely condescending statement to make. But you know what? All of his buddies agreed with him. That's the issue. I'm sure that the entire editorial board of the New York Times said, well, that's ridiculous, missing a day's classes over a football game. And does that make life harder for people like John Bell Edwards? All right. Yes, it does. You know, it's a limited number of people, but it's just a kind of a new word, virtue signaling or whatever that is. In other words, it's like I know more than you, and my life is more meaningful than your life is. Time and time and time again, you have the Mr. Apple bombs of the world making life difficult for people who were living in places. Look at Missouri. Their voters voted to expand Medicaid, and now the governor's refusing to implement it. Right now, I'm, I'm talking to you from South Mississippi. You know, a lot of this stuff matters in people's lives. It really matters. I don't think anybody can be overeducated, but educated coastal people talk to each
2: other, but the rest of the country is listening in to their conversation. They eavesdrop on you. Well, Bill Clinton was very highly educated. He was a Rhodes Scholar, but he wore his education lightly. Um, I think it's a question of the way in which education and people talk about conspicuous consumption, sort of a conspicuous display of education and of political moral righteousness comes to be more important than the pursuit of political power that actually allows you to do something for people. I wonder two other things to take a step back in this conversation. What are a few things that political movements today, Democrats in the United States, left-wing movements more broadly, can learn from the success of Bill Clinton in the United States, of Tony Blair in the United Kingdom, of that generation of politicians? And what are some things on which the time has changed in such a way That it's not just a matter of adjusting message a little bit at the margins, because, you know, some of the questions today are a little different than we were 20, 30 years ago, but really actually departing in a more significant manner from what would have been right in the 1990s.
1: Okay, we're talking about the West here. The prime example is the British Labour Party. It's just talked its way out of existence. You know, starting with Michael Foote in 1983, writing the longest suicide note in history. And they keep adding to it. It's like, no, wait, we'll put an addendum on the longest suicide note in history. (laughs) All right. And that was my point during the primaries in 2020 is we don't want to go the way of the British Labour Party. And political parties exist for a reason, and that is to acquire power. That's why they exist. If they become debating societies, or become dictionary writers or something like that, they lose their relevance. Look, in 1920, Vladimir Lenin wrote a book called Left-Wing Communism, An Infantile Obsession. He couldn't take them in St. Petersburg, okay? In 1920, they drove him nuts. (laughs) But I would pause to say there's a lot of them are very well-meaning people. I mean, some feel power by imposing some kind of orthodoxy, but many of them are well-meaning people that are just careful not to offend anybody.
2: But it doesn't help to win elections, which is really what we're about. A different way of putting this is that it seems like in certain ways there is a very progressive moment in the United States. As you point out, even in a state like Florida, which voted for Donald Trump, you can win big majorities for a $15 minimum wage in the same election. You can win big majorities for re-enfranchising felons a year or two earlier in a referendum. So how do Democrats lean into a really confident and optimistic message about some of those things that are very popular without getting sucked into socialism, defend the police, and all of those things which are sort of deeply unpopular? Four numbers. Ready? Two, zero, one, eight. Two, zero, one, eight.
1: So after 2016, everybody collectively, not even with some kind of meeting, but the entire Democratic Party says, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to talk about these everyday issues. Talked a ton about health care. Talked a ton about, you know, confronting poverty. We talked a ton about better infrastructure, whatever you want. We even talked about climate. That's the key. And again, I point out, Florida. I'm a political consultant. You know, usually when you go into a state, somebody picks you up at the airport." I remember when I did a Kentucky race, and a guy picks me up the airport, so I'm driving in to meet the candidate. And he says, you know, in Kentucky, there's kind of three big things here, and it's uh, bourbon, gambling, and tobacco. And I said, well, do y'all like sex? He said, yeah. I said, I'm going to do just fine in Kentucky. This is this is right in James Carville's wheelhouse. <laughs> so you take Florida, if you're riding to the airport, and so you know, in Florida, two-thirds of the people – want to raise the minimum wage and 64% want to allow felons who've done their time to the right to vote. I'm sitting in the back of my head and said, shit, I can do well here. All right. And that's the overlying picture. So maybe there's nothing wrong with Florida. Maybe there's something wrong with the campaigns we
2: write. And there's an even broader sort of way of saying, look, the problems of American political institutions, the problems with the Senate is biased against Democrats, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, there's validity to some of those claims. But I think there is this sort of amazing... Extent of an unwillingness to try and have a confidence to win within the rules as they are, and part of that I think is this idea that you raised earlier of a rising demographic majority that you know somehow you know Democrats are going to win over time anyway, and it's the question of leaning into that, but the corollary of that is, by the way, a very toxic belief among Republicans that they cannot do well among non-white voters, which I think is empirically wrong and drives a lot of uh, incredibly nasty and anti-democratic, frankly, political behavior among Republicans. But it is also a kind of belief among Democrats that they can't really do very well among white voters and they should sort of somewhat give up on that vote. And as you pointed out, that's not the story of 2020 election. Actually, Joe Biden and the Democrats really improved the standing among white voters and Trump, interestingly, improved the standing among MDLs. Do you think Democrats should try to build on that success in 2020? Do you think the electorate will depolarize by race over the next 20 or 30 years? Or do you think we'll have a sort of backsliding to electoral patterns that look more like 2016?
1: Well, you're right. We did better, among whites. Now, you can't discount just that might be Trump, all right, because there are a lot of whites that obviously voted for Biden and then voted for Republican congressional or state legislative races. The second thing is, and this is a unfortunate bug in the American system, and that is rural white voters have more impact on presidential elections than urban Non white voters. That's just a fact. I I don't like it. I think the Senate is a horribly undemocratic institution where 18% of the country elects 52 senators. But also, that's not going to change. That's not going to change. So we got to operate as best we can in the system that we're operating under. I did a project with a group. We spent $90 million in 77 counties in rural Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And we actually had a real noticeable change. You know, it wasn't huge. But when I explained to people, the people that get it the fastest are people in finance. And I said, look, if I get another quarter percent interest, that's a lot. You know, I change sea level if I change the vote in Black County, Pennsylvania. All right? I just do. And hopefully, we will continue to do that. And most of the stuff that we propose... That they agree with. You know, stop and make an ancillary point. I mean, people call me moderate, I don't want to call me all kind of names. So I like what they call this, it, clickbait. See how you rate your political philosophy. So I'm like an idiot, you know, I think it's all going to be one thing. Of course, you got a one page, the next page. So they ask you political philosophy. I always come out on the really liberal side every time. And I try to answer the questions, you know, as is, is honest as it's, it's, it's from my own personal consumption. And I'd be hard pressed to describe myself as a moderate democrat. But if somebody calls me a moderate democrat, I'm not gonna bad at them, you call me a bad name or anything. And it's so much of someone's personality doesn't always match with their political philosophy. But you're right, a lot of people it's more important about being right than winning. And there's a certain part of the far left that would be perfectly happy if Donald Trump was re-elected. They would raise more money, they would have more influence, they could attack Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and everybody else to their utter joy. But that crowd is not interested in winning elections and we should not pay them very much attention.
2: I'm trying to think how I might have answered the question I asked you earlier about what the big differences are between the 90s and now that require a change of message or a change of tone. And the best answer that I think I can come up with is that the famous slogan in Bill Clinton's first election was, it's the economy, stupid. And I think that was accurate at the time in terms of what voters cared about and how you win an election as a Democrat. I wonder whether today it's the culture, stupid, whether the main issue that animates political discussion Is cultural and a debate about what this country is and should be, rather than questions like the minimum wage. Otherwise, I think Florida would have gone for Democrats rather than Republicans. So, I wonder if you agree with that assessment, and if so, what kind of change in messaging should flow from that?
1: Oh boy! Well, first of all, one of the things that going back to '92, if you look, the economy stupid was the most famous. The reason it was is because it's what we call in the industry "quote sticky," unquote. So was defund the police. <laughs> it was very sticky. <laughs> right? but also, don't forget health care. One of the changes, one of the things that's involved in American politics, American culture or whatever, is that the wealthy people, I get a 401k statement and I get an EKG. I view those as separate events. To 80 percent of the country, their health is the economy. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of people that conduct focus groups where people come back and say, I'm one disease away from bankruptcy. When the Republicans, you know, particularly Fox of Newsmax, they seized, and, and I knew when I did this piece, they would extract from it what they wanted to. I, I had no illusion that they were going to be honest brokers. And they said, James, God, did. they didn't point out that I said, yes, we have to talk about race. We have to talk about racial justice. You know, can you imagine what would have happened if the. January the 6th, rioters were black, but I understand that. I've been around long enough to know, you know, I set out to accomplish something and I accomplished what I wanted to. And I knew what the risks were. And of course, it proved to come to fruition also.
2: But let me push you on this. So how do you talk about race and about racial justice in a way that's full-throated, that stands up for what you and I believe in and stands against the kinds of things that Donald Trump seems to believe in without falling to faculty lounge politics, without alienating white voters and rural white voters that Democrats do need to win, at least not a majority among them perhaps, but a significant percentage of the vote. How do you walk that tightrope?
1: You know, what I would do is, first of all, if you just look at a, on a policy thing, all right, there's a lot of agreement on things like the minimum wage. There's a lot of agreement on things like expanding health care. Democrats, I would say, don't talk about abortion, talk about Roe. Roe is 73% popular. And, you know, sometimes you may have to forego things that I think are necessary. I think I have nothing against, I have guns. But if you're at a place in the Shenandoah Valley, wherever a place, that's utterly foreign to them. A lot of it is showing up. A lot of it is demeanor. All right. Again, speech is one way to communicate. And, of course, represent all of Louisiana. And by that, I mean you, or by that, I mean people in the North Louisiana and Acadiana and you all, I mean, just, just use the general stuff. They will fire up the cultural wars, no doubt about it. They'll say, there's only two genders. You don't have to get in that vortex. And the better politicians are able to do that. And again, signal to, to people that they are not, like a, Sherwood Brown is like a really good example of that, or... Bobby Casey. Their voting records are admirable. And, you know, they show up. They try to appeal to all of those people in Ohio and Pennsylvania. And they've been pretty successful at it, I'd say.
2: Let me leave you with the last question and to compensate, it's a big one. It seems to me that when I look across countries, the left usually does well when people are reasonably optimistic. And the right and particularly sort of far-right figures or right-wing populists do well when people are very pessimistic. And there's a lot of reason to be pessimistic about America right now. I don't know how convincing they ultimately are, but I mean, I've been struck through this pandemic by our lack of collective will and our ability to carry out collective action. You know, I think that's true even within organizations. I think in, in lots of organizations, people in they feel like it's really hard to have coherent purpose and to come together for what you want to do. And there's all of this acrimony and just feels like the sense that the country had For much of its history, we can do stuff and we can get things done, has sort of evaporated. How can we retain that sense? How can we become more optimistic about the things we can achieve together as a country?
1: You know, the pandemic response has really not been inspirational. I mean, we had a common enemy and we did not treat it that way. And it's hard to not put a lot of this blame right at Trump's feet. In fact, I have, just to be honest, these 85 percent responsible for all of it some guy came in and he wasn't vaccinated i wanted to hit him what the fuck are you he said i want to wait and see i said there's 150 million people that had this thing you know what they all have in common they're walking around and breathing man how many people you need to have this all right yet the tug of culture on the right is so deep that people will utterly risk their lives to do this all right. The best explanation that I've heard, and just to show you that I'm not all against the faculty lounge, is from a Berkeley academic by the name of Arlie Russell Harschiel. And Arlie did this book, Strangers in Atlanta. if you had not read it, you should, about these people in southwest Louisiana.
2: I have, and she's been on this podcast in the past. Yeah, she's a wonderful scholar.
1: Oh, good. Okay. So, Arlie's explanation, I think this is a very good explanation, is that people will say, there's a hill, and the top of that hill represents the American dream. And I've been patiently waiting in line. And you know what happened to me? People keep cut in front of me. The blacks cut in front of me. The women cut in front of me. The gays cut in front of me. The Mexicans cut in front of me. People from the Middle East, the Asians cut in front of me. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that if you're a white guy in southwest Louisiana with a high school education, a lot of people are cutting in front of you. The problem is you're obsessing on your place in the line and not whether the line is moving. So if I'm going to go to a movie, which you remember when we did that, and I was fourth in line, but the line didn't move, it didn't help me. I would rather be 31st in a moving line than fourth in a stationary line. And so the right is very happy to argue about your position in the line but they keep the entire line from advancing by giving tax cuts that amount to stock buybacks. All right, or extending patents on drugs and making education affordable and not accessible. And if we don't correct some of these things, the voters are going to correct them themselves. And they're not going to correct them in a way that is satisfactory to people like you and I. But I do know when I graduated Miller Law School in 1973, everybody got a job. Maybe if you were last, you'd assistant D.A. in a, you know, sparsely populated parish in the middle of nowhere, but you got a job. And it was one black and three women. I barely knew what a BMW or a Sony was. I mean, Germany and Japan were still digging themselves out of the hole. Well, that's not the world we live in today. Too bad. <laughs> you know, now you go to LSU Law School, it's majority women. And the truth of the matter is, and I hate to say this because I'm one, but the place of the Caucasian male in America, when my family comes out here, my sisters, and they say, you know, James, this is not the same country we grew up in. And I said, of course it's not. And guess what? 20 years from now, it's going to be a different country than it is today. Yeah, we have this nostalgic view. And Trump thinks that the 50s was sort of a great time. Well, if you were a black person or a woman or a gay person, that's probably not your high watermark. And part of it is we have to have a good bedside manner here telling people that this change is really good for the country. And to try to change it is a futile effort and a losing effort. But to adapt to it, because it's all the studies say, so let's say you and I have $100,000. Well, if last week I had 125000 and I have a hundred this week, I feel one way about it. If you had 75000 last week and you have a hundred this week, you feel another way. Now, we both have $100,000, all right, But one of us is losing, and one of us is winning. And psychologically, that's all the difference in the world. And it's inevitable that white, particularly white males, are going to lose their status in society. It's just going to happen. It can't be stopped, and it's almost ridiculous to try to stop it. But... It's just just a fact. So, you know, if we could just get this damn line moving, I would be really happy and <laughs> get more people on the top of that hill, you know, in Arlie's Hill. But I think, to show you, I'm not anti-intellectual. I agree with Arlie. Her husband, by the way, wrote a stunning book called Barry the Chain" on the British anti-slave trade movement. And before I got you, I, I want to lobby your picture or something for you. And, and I read the book. I asked Sean Wilentz, what's a movement where people have sort of acted against their temporary perceived self-interest? And he said the British anti-slave trade movement. When Clarkson and those guys started, none of thought about it very much. But you know what they did? They used emotion. All right? They used emotion like you can't believe. They came up with the most famous song in the English language, Amazing Grace. All right? They used Wedgwood China they would go and draw diagrams of slave ships. I mean, they put it in front of you and they did it in an emotional way. The movement that I have the most contempt for is communications is the one that the world depends on and that is climate. Climate has no song. It has no bumper sticker. It has no lapel pin. It has nothing because the faculty lounge says we have reason. We have temperature charts. We have timetables, title tables. That's all you need to do. and people. There was right. Not by bread alone does man live. You're not going to move people. And it's living here. I mean, it's two issues that dwarf everything else, I think, in modern United States. Inequality and climate. There's a third, but we can't argue over one and two.
2: We could argue over the third. I think you would agree with me on that. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the best explanation for why anybody on the left needs to have optimism. Because if you tell people that it's just about the order in the line, you're going to lose because there are always going to be these mutual resentments. And mutual resentment is always a layup for the right. You have to have a realistic vision of the line is going to move forward. And yes, perhaps if you had a kind of unearned status advantage in the past, if you had these advantages as a white man that other groups did not have, you might lose some of that unearned advantage. But you know what? My line is going to move forward and you're going to be fine. And so I think the job is to paint an optimistic vision of the future where the line moves. And everybody has a place, and everybody has a fair place. That includes the rising groups and includes the declining groups as well. If you tell the declining groups, if you
1: tell a white male with a high school degree that, hey, everything is honky-dory for you, it's not. You have lost something. But there's a way to improve this, and that's move the line. We have no desire, nor should we pull people out of their you know, wherever they fight in the line. But for God's sakes, let's get this thing moving here.
2: James Cavill, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Well thank you. I'm very big admire. You're a very bright guy. I read the stuff that you do and it was a predictable, fun conversation and I think we covered a lot of ground. So I appreciate it.